0: Let me invite you to get your Bibles and turn to Psalm 3, Psalm 3. Let's stand together as we read this, the third Psalm. Now, I know last week, if you were here, Pastor John touched on this as he went through all the the whole Psalms. Um, But uh, I had already planned on on speaking on this, and I think um, this will be helpful to us today. I trust that the the word of God will be so. Psalm 3, Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Oh, Lord. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Lord, help us today to humble ourselves before you and your word. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger simply, Lord, to be the vehicle through which you want your church to grow and to be conformed to your son, Jesus Christ. Strengthen me, help me, Lord, to do what you've called me to do so that your church family can be encouraged and strengthened in the faith we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I don't know if you are a soccer fan, but um, earlier this month there was a bunch of soccer going on. There was the Copa America going on in South America. There was the Euro championships going on in Europe. And of course, I grew up in England, and so I'm an England fan, and I watched England get their way to the final, and the final came, and I was at my son's house, and My kids, for Father's Day, got me an England shirt, and it actually fit, which is really good, because that's been a problem in the past. And we're sitting there, and we're watching the game, and the game was really intense. England goes up, one nothing, and the thing England is known for is their defense, and they played excellent defense, and Italy kept on trying to score and trying to score, and finally they squeaked one in, and the game went to overtime, and even in overtime, it was tied, and it came down to penalties. Now, you have to understand this. There, was, there were no shops open in England on this day. I mean, the whole country shut down. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not lying. The whole country shut down because the last time England was in a final of a major competition was in 1966. And they're like, this is it. And it comes down to penalties. The first two guys take their penalties, and they're like, you know, these guys are, are seasoned. They've been on the England team uh, for a, a while, and they nailed their penalties. Italy knocks theirs in. I think they, the one was saved and stuff. But then the next three for England were young guys, and they were awful in their penalty taking. I mean, I watched, and I was just like, I mean, I played soccer, and I was just like, that was really, really weak. In fact, after the game, because like, they lost it in penalties, you could see them, they were just crying. I mean, they were on their knees crying. I mean, they were under so much pressure. Can you imagine stepping up to kick a soccer ball and the weight of your whole country is on you? You're either going to be a hero or you're going to be a loser. I mean, those are the choices. Friends, that's pressure. That is pressure. And today, as we look at at Psalm 3, we want to realize that David is under great pressure. The reason for his pressure is that his son Absalom has been crafty and is manipulating the people of Israel against David. Some of them don't even know it. And King David is on the run from the pursuit of his son and his son's men who want, and David's son wants to usurp his throne. But the psalm is emphasizing that those reading or singing this psalm, that even when God's people are under the severest of pressures, that God is faithful to bring about comfort and deliverance. And I want to put it to you this way in a little shorter form. There is hope for the believer who is suffering under worldly pressure. See, what was going on with Absalom was not a godly move. It was a move against what God was doing. And there is hope for the believer. There's hope for David. There's hope for you and me when we're under worldly pressure. In the words of the psalm, salvation belongs to the Lord. And it seems a rather strange statement, doesn't it? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Because in our thinking, when we see the word salvation, we automatically think of conversion. But this is not talking about conversion, but of provision and deliverance. So what does it mean? What is the the point here of this, this salvation? On a primary level, it's referring to the physical deliverance God provides for his chosen king, that is David. And by means of foreshadowing, it is also pointing to Christ, ultimately, who finds himself under pressure by those that want to undermine what he is doing, who he is. On a secondary level, it reminds us of God's sovereign purposes in the affairs of this world where he is at work in and through his people during times of trouble. So don't think of salvation here as conversion. Think about salvation as the outworking of God's promise to his people. And this psalm will will navigate through four movements. Trouble, verses 1 and 2. Trust, verses 3 and 4. Rest, verses 5 and 6. And deliverance, verses 7 and 8. Just these these couplets all working together to, to walk us through this journey with David as he is under pressure. And I want to begin this morning by looking at The trouble we face, and we're going to spend a good bit of time here because we want to feel the trouble that is going on in this text and how it really presses home even into our lives. Now, we all face different kinds of trouble, don't we? We all face our days with concern about finances or health or relationships or safety or even our pursuit of Christ in our present context. But specifically, the psalm is dealing with the pressure of physical trouble as David seeks to remain safe from those pursuing men, men who want to harm him and kill him. So let's think, first of all, about the trouble David faced. David, God's chosen king, was in trouble. He's being hunted by eager men who want to kill him. And we're told here that enemies will rise up against him. Did you notice the many descriptions that are given here in this psalm? They're kind of at the beginning, at the end, for the most part. They're called foes in verse 1. They're called many in verse 1 and in verse 2 again. They are many thousands of people in verse 6. They are enemies in verse seven. They are the wicked in verse seven. So we're putting all of this together. We see that David is not in a good place. And the title of the psalm gives us an indication as to what is going on, right? A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Absalom, David's son, had revolted against him to usurp his throne. And he's orchestrated and manipulated all these people to turn against David. Now, David is on the run. He's hiding out in the desert with his men in caves. And his situation is certainly dire. So, there were enemies who were rising up against him, but there were enemies also who are speaking out against him. His enemies are against him physically and verbally. Not insulting him personally, but hear this, insulting his belief that he is under God's protection. It says, there is no salvation for him in God. The old rhyme, maybe we don't say it too much because we figured out why it's false. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's true, sticks and stones may hurt us, so it should cause us to fear, but it's false to say that words will never hurt me. Yes, they're just words, but they can put fear into our souls. They can cause us to question our beliefs. They can derail our confidence as we seek to press on. Now, there's one specific scene in the Absalom revolt that I believe these words are referring to. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 16. You might want to turn there. In verses 5 through 8. It is when David is nearing the town of Behurim with his mighty men. 2nd Samuel 16 verses 5 through 8. And a man by the name of Shimei who was from the house of Saul. Remember Saul was the previous king. He's the king the people wanted but he was a failed king. But this man Shimei was from the house of Saul. He begins to throw stones and to curse David. Listen to what he says. Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. Now, Shimei was loyal to Saul, but the reality is that God had not given the kingdom to Saul. He had given it to David. And so Shimei is actually promoting something that was not part of God's plan at all. But he thinks he is. David summarizes this sentiment in this psalm by saying, there is no salvation for him in God. In other words, God has given up on you, David. You're doomed. There's no hope for you now that Absalom is ascending to the throne Friends, those are hard words to hear. They're words that put doubt in what God has promised to David, that he would be both shepherd, we're told, and prince over God's people Israel. Second Samuel 5, verse 2. The circumstances are bad, and there is every appearance that what God has promised was unraveling and coming to an end that the world around David was falling apart, it was closing in, that those who were once faithful to David are now conspiring to put him to death. This is not a good place. Will God do what he says he would do? That's the trouble David faced. I want to flash forward a little bit and think think of this in a foreshadowing sense, the trouble that Jesus faced. In the same way, these things happened to Jesus in the Gospels. Those who were once for Jesus, who cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, just a week later, are yelling, Crucify him, crucify him. You remember that, right? He's betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas. He's taken prisoner by the Jewish guards. He stands before the Sanhedrin. That's the gathering of the Hebrew religious leadership where he is found guilty of trumped up charges of blasphemy. All of it was through manipulation in order to get rid of him. Not even Pilate is willing to stand up to what he knew to be the the, the conviction of an innocent man. And when Jesus is taken to be crucified, soldiers mocked him. They placed on him a purple cloak. They twisted a crown of thorns on his head. They were saluting him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head and they spit on his face. Then as Jesus was hanging on the cross, people were passing by, deriding him and wagging their heads, which is kind of a a a symbolic way of, of mocking someone. And they were saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross, not realizing what they were saying. And then the religious leaders kept saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And the soldiers around the cross mocked him by saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Even one of the criminals crucified with Jesus railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You think Jesus was under pressure? We get any sense with the way he was Jesus. He's like you know, Superman. Remember, this is Jesus in his humanity, not just in his divinity. He's listening to these things. He's having to endure these things, yet he knows the plan of the Godhead. So like David, Jesus, his enemies, rose up against him and spoke out against him. And the same has always been true of those who follow Christ. Now, bear with me, if you would, please, because I want to consider now the trouble that we, the followers of Christ, face. The truth is, friends, that we're living in a society that has been slowly turning antagonistically against Christians and Christianity. I think you feel that. The truth of the matter is that the world in which we are living is always seeking to squeeze us into its Mold. That's what the Apostle Paul reminds us of in Romans 12, 2, when he says, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, as J.B. Phillips says in his translation, do not allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. The world has its own molds, plural, doesn't it not? I mean, just listen to a few of them. It has political molds. If you're not for socialism, you're evil. If you're not for MAGA, you're evil. If you're not for the United Nations, you're evil. It has scientific molds. If you don't follow the world's science, you're ignorant. You're a fool. If you don't wear a mask, you don't love people. If you won't get a vaccine, you're foolish. You're selfish. You don't love others. If you don't embrace and follow the ideas of global warming and climate change, you don't care about the planet. You hate your neighbor. It has sexual ethic molds. You don't embrace the new sexual freedom, which includes promiscuity, homosexuality, and transgenderism. You're evil, you're hateful, you're ignorant, you're bigoted. And if you're not teaching your children to question their biology and support them if they feel they want to change their gender identity, you're not loving your children. There are racial molds. If you're white, you're a racist. And if you seek to prove that you're not a racist, that's evidence that you're a racist and that you're evil. If you don't protest along with BLM, you're bigoted. If you say something negative about anyone who is seeking racial restoration, reconciliation, reparations, you're hateful. If you attempt to bring a balance Biblical answer to the race question, then you're guilty of prioritizing a man's, a white man's religion over your love for your fellow man. In other words, you just don't know that you're racist. It has economic molds that promotes economic equality without regard to any kind of work ethic. If you're troubled at the unemployment compensation abuse that is going on, you're just Lacking love and you're selfish. If you're opposed to a higher minimum wage, you're oppressive. If you believe that people should be hired based on their merits, crying out loud, you're bigoted. It has freedom of speech molds. You don't have the right to speak unless you fit into their system. That's critical race theory. And then, of course, there's cancel culture that just says, you have no right to comment. And it has religious moles. The world loves religion. Don't think they don't. They love spirituality, but only if it promotes and conforms its ideas and ideologies to what the world wants. So if the church teaches and promotes these ideas, they are celebrated as being brave and loving their community. But if they continue to preach and teach what the scriptures actually say, in other words, they continue to preach what the church has preached through the years, the word of God, then they are unloving, hateful, bigoted, and on the wrong side of history. Friends, do you feel that? You might, say, it might be tempted to say, Pastor, you're just being political. And I would respond, I'm not being political, I'm being real. This is the kind of world that we're living in. These issues are real and in your face, regardless of what party you may choose to vote for. And when it comes down to it, party affiliation is irrelevant. It's what God thinks that's important. It's what God says is true that is the thing that we need to be focusing on. So this is not a political response at all. This is just the way in which our world now is seeking to squeeze us into its mold. And friends, we feel the pressure. I know we do because I interact with you. Every one of those examples that I've given, every one of those ideologies that we just talked about runs contrary to the teachings of scripture and a genuine biblical wisdom but these are all examples to reinforce the fact that if you don't spew the world's ideas and ideologies, in other words, conform to the world's molds, you are considered to be evil, bigoted, unloving, and hateful. And friends, I don't see it letting up anytime soon. You say, Pastor Rod, didn't you hear what Albert said this morning? You know, some of us want to come in. We want to be encouraged. We'll get there. We'll get there. The point is, we have to be honest. It's it's like David in the cave saying, "Eh, there's nothing really going on. No, his son has manipulated a bunch of people. And it's interesting in that story, many of those people don't even realize they're being manipulated. But they are. This is real. This is what's happening. And so it affects me as a pastor. I'm under pressure to conform to the new world ideology. It affects you as parents, You're under pressure to hand your children over to society and celebrate their rebellious indoctrination. say rebellious against God indoctrination. If you're a man, you're under pressure to rethink what it means to be a man in the 21st century. Stop opening doors for women, for crying out loud. If you're a woman, you're under pressure to be loud and liberated from the oppression of our patriarchal society. If you're a student, then you're under pressure to turn against your Christian upbringing and conform, deconstruct what you have been taught. If you're an employee, you're under pressure to embrace the world's ideologies because they're just making decisions from a business perspective. And if you're a child, you're under pressure to question the way God has created you. Pressure, pressure, pressure. And friends, these truly are strange days and every true Christian living under the pressure to give up on God, they're living under that pressure to give up on God and to conform to the world's ideologies and it's so much easier to give in and conform isn't it? I mean that's what our flesh says why fight? (laughs) why fight? It's too hard I mean it appeals to our desires to be liked And accept it. I mean, I want to be popular. I want to be seen as someone good. It appeals to our comfort. Friends, God is calling us to something greater. I want to draw your attention to that verse that I quoted from Romans 12. I want you to see it. I know it's something we know very well, but let's see it again. Do not be conformed to this world, but... Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God is calling us to be strong in the arena of the mind. He is saying through the pen of Paul that our goal is transformation out of the world's mold by the renewing of our minds. So what does that mean? It means that our minds and our hearts Our very being is to be washed by the water of the world so that it begins to see the world as God sees it and is conformed to God's standard rather than man's wicked ways. So to put it differently, we're all to fill our minds with God's thoughts, God's wisdom, God's counsel, God's character, God's definitions, God's instructions, God's warnings, and God's promises. Now I love how J.B. Phillips fleshes out and translates this this passage. He, He has a sense of wanting to kind of really connect the ideas. It's not a literal translation, but it's helpful. It says, Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within, so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good. It meets all his demands and moves toward the goal of true maturity. Now, friends, isn't that the the warning and the encouragement even even of the first Psalm? It says in, in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the arena of the mind. It's meditating, it's it's taking yourself back to the word of God to give you that clarity, to give you that understanding, to give you uh, discernment. The law of the Lord is where we sit and meditate in order to determine the way in which we are to live and to give counsel to how we are to think and behave. Now back to Psalm 3. We find David in trouble under pressure. It's real, it's growing, and it's desperate. So what does David do? Does he he get angry with God? Can't believe this is how the world is turning out. Stinking world. Does he wallow in self-pity off in a corner? I can't believe he's doing this to me. Right? Does he just give up and walk away? No, he turns to God and he preaches to his own soul. There is a hinge in this psalm, and it happens right at verse 3. I mean, here are the enemies. They're out to get me. But you, oh Lord, don't pass by that. It's a hinge. It's a change. There's something that happens in him. How does David face this Overwhelming pressure in the wilderness with his enemies seeking out his life to destroy him. He turns away from the overwhelming pressure of his enemies to focus his mind and heart on the Lord. Friends, when we spend too much time thinking about the enemies that are lined up against us and the pressures we're under, we can easily be overwhelmed. Can I just tell you, turn off that talk radio. Stop clicking through those websites. It's not going to change the world. When we turn our thoughts to God and we're reminded of his true and glorious stature, those daunting foes shrink into manageable proportions. So says James Montgomery Boyce, and I think he's right. We begin to see those issues afresh, but with the the counsel and the help of God through his word. It isn't that they don't exist, but because we have God on our side who guides and counsels us through adversity, and we can face our foes with confidence. Now, you remember the story of the 12 spies, Kadesh Barnea. Twelve spies were sent out to investigate the land. This is Numbers 14. Ten of the spies return and emphasize, yes, they saw the land was flowing with milk and honey, but there are enemies there. There's fortified cities. There are these sons of Anak who are giants, and they said this, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And then the remaining two spies, Joshua and Caleb, gave their report, and they said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Numbers 14 verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. (laughs) Bread, we can cut through them. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Here's the difference, friends. The ten spies went into the land and they were consumed with fear of what they saw. Joshua and Caleb saw the exact same thing. They're not denying that there were giants. They're not denying that there were fortifications. But what they know is that they had the force of Yahweh behind them. And God had promised to give the land to his people. You see, it was his promise. His promise, which was key. So here we have the promise that we believe. They realized that the Lord was behind them and he had said, I will give you this land. So now David turns to the Lord in the face of his son's rebellion. And in his dire circumstances, and we're told four things about God, four things that really are promises about God. First of all, God is our shield. Now, this picture of God is found many times. David actually likes to use this expression. And look over at Psalm 18, verse 30. Psalm 18, verse 30. Psalm 18 is really a psalm lifted out of 2 Samuel 22. This is the song of David. And so what we have here repeated, both in the Psalm of David and the Psalms, is this. Look at verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So this is twice now quoted in what? 2 Samuel 22, verse 31. Now here in Psalm 18. But I found it really interesting that if you turn to Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5, you have the exact same thing. This promise now has become a foundational truth contained in the book of Proverbs. God is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. But what does that mean? Well, think about it. A shield protects us from the arrows and attacks of the enemy. So it's a means of protection. But a shield also endures or absorbs the enemy's constant fire. A shield also, if you're in battle, helps you move ahead, back, from side to side. It helps you, because you're being protected, to think about what you need to do to strategize. And a shield also gives you confidence. So now David had been in many battles and situations, in, in situations that looked dire, and he was a seasoned warrior, and God had both protected him and delivered him a number of times. And now he leans into God by reminding himself or preaching to himself of what he already knows about God, that God protects and defends his children. God is our shield. Secondly, God is our Glory. Now that's a description that we're like, yes, that's good. Yeah, God is our glory. But I think sometimes we're like, what does that actually mean? <laughs> what is he saying here? What David is saying here is that the Lord is his priority. But when it comes down to it, although he is in this situation, the priority isn't David. The priority is God and his glory. So this is a shift in thinking. It's a reminder for us that when we turn to God, we are drawn out of our fixation with our trouble and pressures and to once again see that God is the priority in the situation. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether you eat or drink, whether you do, it is to be done for the glory of God. Everything is to be done for the glory of God. Our church exists to glorify God by being a Right? In other words, to glorify God is the ultimate purpose. But when we're in a world under pressure and we're seeing all the trouble, we're seeing all the voices or we're hearing all the voices and we're feeling all that pressure, it's so easy to get our eyes off of God, him being the priority and to look at our situation. So David is wrestling his way back to saying, God, you are the one who is the priority. You are my shield. Third, God is our restorer. To lift up the head is a Hebrew expression for restoring someone who is cast down in his dignity and position. For example, you may remember the story, Joseph is in prison and the cupbearer to the king comes to Joseph. He is also in prison and he has a dream and Joseph interprets that dream. And this is what it says in Genesis 40 verse 13. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. So the idea of lifting up a head is to be restored. Unfortunately, there was also a baker in the story and his head was lifted up, but just a little further. All right. A different kind of result. He he lost his head. When we are severely beaten down by our trials, friends, and in particular, the enemies and ideologies we face, God comes in to encourage us, to lift us up out of our despair, to see him afresh, to get some biblical focus, to shake the cobwebs of fear out of our hearts, to restore our joy. That's the kind of God we have. It's not that the pressure isn't real. It is. But God is greater. Now look at Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. Get a little glimpse here of, of what David is going through, having heard about and being in the situation where Absalom is rising up. It says here, Second Samuel 15:30, "But David went up to, uh, up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. This was a dark time for David. And he is understandably in great despair, but he knows that God can lift his head up to face the daunting task before him. Why? Because God is a restorer. He's our restorer. The fourth thing is this. God is our prayer answerer. Try and say that a few times. He's our prayer answerer. Verse four, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. One commentator observes that David's crying to Lord does not express a single act, but a habit of life. He's emphasizing that David's prayer here is not some kind of a foxhole experience where, oh, this is just one moment when I, I say something out to God to get me out of this mess. No, this is a habit of David's life to turn to God and to appeal to him. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, so aptly encourages us when he says, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. God hears our prayers, even when we are experiencing the pressures of the world. Now, first of all, did we think that there weren't going to be any pressures? Well, we are living in the United States of America, right? I mean, this is God's country, and this should be like a utopia. Think again, my friends. But we have had the privilege of peace and comfort for many years, haven't we? And things are slowly turning. But God's still seated on his throne. And he's calling us to live. He's calling us to serve him. He's calling us to be faithful to him. Now let's reflect a little bit about Jesus in the garden. We see the struggle taking place in his heart, don't we? He's burdened down with pain. He knows that the cup of his suffering is coming. He's tired. He's weary. He's sweating great great drops of blood. And he cries out to the Father saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We we see this, this kind of interplay between his humanity and his divine purpose. And that's comforting for us because he feels, he feels the pressure. He feels what he has yet to go through. And the Lord sends an angel to strengthen him. So he leans into the Father as he faces his final hour of suffering. And the same is true for us, isn't it? When we find ourselves overwhelmed by the pressures of this life, God wants us to stop consuming our thoughts about the trouble we're facing and instead turn our thoughts to him. So that, We can face that trouble afresh, but with his thoughts, his counsel, his promises, his guidance. So it's preached to our hearts that God is our shield. He is our priority. He is our restorer. He is our sovereign God who answers our prayers. And what the psalm is teaching us is that when we do that, we will find rest, which moves us then into this third part, the rest that we will receive. I don't know about you, but there are many times that I am not able to fall asleep at night. Anyone fit into that category? Um, Sometimes it's because I had too much coffee or tea. Sometimes it's because I'm excited about something that's happening the next day, and my mind is just thinking about it. Sometimes it's because I have an appointment early in the morning, and I don't want to miss my alarm. And so I can't sleep, or I sleep very, very sh- in a shallow way because I'm just thinking about the alarm going. I want to make sure I get up early enough. And, of course, you're always waking up just an hour early, an hour early, and then you wake up like one minute before the alarm goes off, right? And you're like, Urgh. But you're up. But there are times when I'm consumed with some troubles or pressures. Something difficult is going on with one of our church members, and it's weighing me down. One of my children is going through a time of personal struggle. I behave sinfully and I'm trying to sort through it in my mind. Can't sleep. Here in Psalm 3, and in particular verses 5 and 6, we have a real-life drama illustrating what Paul says in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, friends, we long for that peace, don't we? We long to to have that peace, to be able to face the things that God has for us. Now, David, having turned to his sovereign God amid his trouble, experiences the sustaining presence and activity of God that allows him to rest in full comfort and confidence. Del Davis I, I appreciate Dale Davis in his writings. He reminds us that the emphatic I of verse 5 comes after the emphatic but you of verse 3. He's saying, I rest, but that comes after but you, O oh God. He puts it this way. Because you, O oh Lord, are what you are, I can go take a snooze. And I just, just think about that. I mean, just... When you realize who God really is, and what he promises to you, and what he is doing for you, psh, no problem. We have, first of all, the confidence to sleep. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustaining. me. Now remember, David was not lying his head on the pillow in the palace. He's out in the wilderness in a cave. Of course, he's been out there. He's a warrior. He knows what it's like to be out there, but he's certainly under this incredible pressure. And God helps him get the much needed rest that he needs. There's a New Testament example of of this when Peter is imprisoned at a violent time when even James, the brother of John, has been killed. And Herod is trying to gather up Christians and they finally get Peter and he's put in jail. And what we find in Scripture as it shows us Peter, he is sleeping chained to two, or between two guards. You're facing your death the next day, likely, and what is he doing? He's sleeping. I think most of us would want to maximize our time a lot, wouldn't we? You know, we don't want to say, I'm just going to go to sleep. I've got 12 hours. Yeah, 11 of it, I can sleep. That's fine. I'll just skip 11 hours, and then I'll have an hour to worry about it, right? No, we would be up all night worried that we were going to die. Listen, Turning to God in times of trouble and pressure gives us the confidence to sleep. So while Absalom plotted David's ruin, David went to sleep. No Tylenol PM, just God's sustaining presence. Now, hear this. Not only does God sustain David to get his much-needed sleep, he also sustains David to face the new day. Now, this is really important, friends. Sometimes that is our problem. We want to sleep, but we just don't want to wake up. We don't want to face the next day with all the trouble that it might bring. We're full of fear of what it's going to be like. It's going to be too hard. It's going to be too challenging. It's going to be confrontation. It's going to be too draining. It's going to be too intimidating. I just want to sleep. Notice that the foes have grown from many to many thousands of people and they have set themselves all around David. But David is confident that God as his shield around him would protect him. And so David is not afraid. I remember my pastor growing up and he, he drilled this principle into me. He said, one plus God is a majority. Just think about that. Here, David had many thousands of people all around him, but David plus God is a majority. And when you look out over all the voices that are against you simply because you are a follower of Christ, it is good to be reminded that you and God make a majority because you don't feel like you are a majority. You feel like a minority. But remember what the Apostle Paul says, if God is for us, who is against us. Now that doesn't give us freedom to be arrogant or to be rude toward those who are against us, but it does give us freedom to be confident that our sovereign God is greater than all those voices, all these sources of pressure, all this trouble. So we move now into this last section, the deliverance we experience. You'll notice that this psalm begins by telling us that the enemies were rising up against David. And now at the end, the psalm tells uh, tells us that we find God rising up against David's enemies. The last two verses of this psalm are a confident cry for God's deliverance. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now, The language of David's cry is rooted in a war cry given whenever Israel would break camp with the Ark of the Covenant. You can find that in Numbers 10, verse 36. Actually, verse 35. Here's what it says. And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. This is what David is appealing to. It's that same war cry that he's giving. And, and, and the, the expressions that were given here about uh, uh, striking the enemies on the cheek and, and breaking the teeth of the wicked, are, those are all images portraying the enemies like wild beasts that God will render powerless. If you know the rest of the story, Absalom continues to rise up But God had given David strength and he's able to get out away from Absalom's men. Absalom listened to bad counsel planted by David in his leadership there. And so he listens to that, which allows David then to rally his troops. There is a great battle and David's army is victorious and Absalom dies. Friends, there is a practical reality about David's deliverance that is rooted now in God. God delivers him. If we turn to the New Testament, another mighty warrior finds himself in danger. It's the Apostle Paul. And he's speaking to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he's reflecting on his life. And in verse 17 of chapter 4, here's what he says. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So... I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, first of all, God may rescue me in this life. Rescued from the lion's mouth. God had rescued David many times. So he knew what it meant to be rescued by God. But he's also saying that rescue can come in the form of being rescued from this life. Look, this world is not our home. We're just passing through, right? Now, I realize we have relationships that are important to us. And that's part of the the sadness. But there's there's a divine purpose that rescue to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is a glorious thing. Don't think of that as like, oh man, why did he take me out of here? I was having such a good time in this sin-cursed world. As opposed to being in heaven with your Savior. Have Have we kind of lost our bearings as to what's really most important? So friends, it's important also here that we recognize that we don't claim the same promise that David is claiming. David was claiming a promise that was given to him by God about him being his chosen king, the leader of his people. You're not a king. You're not the leader of his people. The promises that we claim flow out of the gospel that he has imparted to us. And that gospel reminds us that we are his children, that he is committed to us. He is not just partnering with us. He is sustaining us. He is carrying us through. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We have an inheritance. We have, we're adopted. We're part of his family. These are all wonderful promises that help us navigate through life. But there's one statement which is also a promise that we can all lean on during times of trouble and pressure. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And here we have David's confidence in God. Notice how the psalm begins. Enemies are rising up against David saying, there's no salvation for, for David and God. And then David turned to God. He cried out. God answered. He slept and he was sustained. He prayed and God saved. him. now at the end of the psalm, we're told, God would rise up against David and his enemies and that salvation belongs to the Lord. See, it's all turned around, isn't it? Begins one way, it ends another way. Why? And God is in the center of all. So, friends, this is a clear reference to the fact that David, in David's mind, his confidence was not in his troops. His confidence was not in the counselors that he had placed as spies, you might want to say, influencers in Absalom's court. His confidence was was not in his skills as a military strategist. All of those realities were in play, certainly, but he knew that it was only God who could and would bring about His deliverance. We find this expression in the book of Jonah. If you remember, in the the book of Jonah, God tells Jonah, "Go to Nineveh and and preach this message of judgment." Jonah says, "Uh "Uh-uh, not doing that." He goes the opposite direction, and out of discipline and love, God brings a he causes a storm. He's thrown overboard, and he 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 is swallowed by a fish. And in this fish, he has this time of reflection. I don't know about you, I would have a time of reflection if I was in the fish. And here's how it ends. He, he finally says this at the end of chapter 2. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Here, here's the point. Jonah was saying it is God who determines who will be rescued. See, Jonah didn't want the grace of God to go to this wicked people. And in the belly of the fish, God teaches him something, and Jonah comes to a conclusion. God determines who will be rescued, whether it's me in the belly of a fish or whether it's Nineveh at the hearing of a command of judgment. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Friends, Jesus was also despised and rejected. He was mocked and scorned on the cross, but the the gospels show us that he was resolute in the face of opposition to go to Jerusalem to suffer and be crucified. Hebrews 12, two, I'll say it this way. Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus rose up with a victory cry to deliver his people. So you see the movement here, the trial, the suffering, the pressure that moves to trusting in who God is, that moves now to to finding comfort and rest, having having preached to our own hearts those realities about God. And then, because we know God is sovereign, we're able then to say, okay, my deliverance is in your hand, Lord. I'm going to place myself in your care. So friends, this morning I want to recognize that although this psalm and its main emphasis is the pressure we experience because of the words and actions of those who are opposed to God, that the, the, the principles here in the psalm help us even in more general situations or in other situations where there is pressure that we face through our lives. I could go through a list and I reflected just on all the different pressures that you guys are going through. There's two things I think are screaming at us. There are lessons that we need to come from this passage. I've mentioned them both. And please hear this and consider these these words of counsel and help to you. I'm actually going to allow other people's words to really drive this home. First of all, it's, it's a call here to preach. It's a call to preach God's truth to our struggling hearts. Hear what... Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor from many years ago, writes in his book on spiritual depression. So profound. He says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression is a sense, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter is Of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself have you you have taken uh, you have to take yourself in hand you have to address yourself preach to yourself question yourself you must go on to remind yourself of God who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do then having done that end on this great note Defy yourself, defy other people, defy the devil and the world. That is the essence of the treatment. In a nutshell, he's saying, friends, we must stop listening to our flesh. And we must preach to ourselves what God wants us to hear. Left to ourselves, we're going to take the easy road. Left to ourselves, we're just going to be selfish. Left to ourselves, we're going to be lazy. Left to ourselves, we're not going to confront the things that are out there. We're just going to be overrun. But no, God says, preach, preach, preach. So you don't have to be a pastor to preach to yourself. This is a call for every believer. And you've got to get up and you've got to say, soul, stop. Getting your salvation your satisfaction in yourself. Get your satisfaction from God. You've got to preach to your soul. It doesn't just let it happen. So, friends, talk radio, social media, Netflix, and Wall Street Journal will always fall short in giving you what your soul truly needs. We need to be preaching the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to our hearts in order to face the pressure and trouble of living in a world that wants to squeeze us into its mold. Secondly, we're called to pray. It's what David is doing. He's crying out to God. He's coming to God. He's interacting with God. So we're called to pray by leaning into God with our thoughts, with our anxieties, with our words. I love what Dale Davis says about prayer. He says, prayer is the way we slog our way through troubles." Right? Lord, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know how how this is going to be solved, but I'm coming to you. And you, you can throw your hands in the air, figuratively speaking, or actually, God doesn't care. But you're turning to him. Paul Tripp is also very helpful. He says this, prayer yanks you out of your delusions of self-sufficiency and reminds you of how deeply needy you really are. Prayer reminds you that you will never be what you need to be and do what you are called to do without divine rescue and restoration. Prayer humbles you, and as it does, it makes you more patient and more understanding. It's from his word, his book, What Did You Expect? I want us to listen to the counsel of Charles Simeon. He says this. We have not to awaken him by our cries or to prevail upon him by our pleadings as though he were himself either inattentive to us or adverse to undertake our cause. In other words, God is not sitting up there like when you pray. He's like, oh, come on. What do you want now? As if you're bothering God, as if he doesn't really care. No. He says, It is not for this end that our prayers and tears are required, but for the impressing of our own minds that all our help must come from him. Yea, his eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth to find out objects, as it were, who feel their need of him. His whole heart and his whole soul are engaged for us. David isn't crying out to God because it's just one of the options on his quick fix list. It is the response to all that he's going through. It is the response that shapes him. That guides him, that moves him, that motivates him, that comforts him, that encourages him, that gives him clarity. So, prayer is not just something you do, prayer is something you experience with God. He said, Oh, now you're going to all experiential. Oh, no. Part of prayer is not just asking God to do stuff for you. It's coming to God with your prayers and conforming yourself to his will. Fighting your way through your flesh to say, Lord, I know you're in control and I'm going to trust you. And Lord, I, I don't know what to do, but when you show me, Lord, I want to be humble and willing to do it. See, we want to pray Say, okay, I did that prayer, now God, do your thing. And there's an aspect where that could be true. But another aspect of prayer is to say, God, I have engaged with you. My, my heart and my mind and my soul has been refreshed with your realities. And so now I can face what is before me with your strength, with your help, with your guidance. Friends, there is hope for the Christian who is struggling under pressure god has not forgotten about you he's not forgotten about your children he's not unaware that we are living in the society with all of the different voices blowing around he still called us to stand up and be his children and to live our lives for his glory but we can't do that if we're going to be superficial We can't do that without preaching God's truth to our hearts. We can't do that if we're not leaning into him in prayer. We don't deny the realities of those pressures, but we face those pressures with a God-centered perspective, having spent time giving him the right place in our lives and listening to his counsel. Lord, help us today. Because, Lord, you know we are under pressure. You're not. <laughs> you're not at all, Lord. But we are. And Lord, we are so thankful that although our conversion, you're drawing us to yourself, our restoration, Lord, brings about this wonderful new life in Christ. But Lord, we are also reminded that that doesn't mean that this new life in Christ is not going to have struggle. It's not going to have opposition. It's not going to have uh, types of, uh, of difficulty and pressures. It's not going to have opposition. Lord, we, 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 we need to be reminded that, Lord, because we are Christians, that the world is going to hate us, want to undermine what we do, want to mock us and laugh at us when we take stands that we just think are just normal, run-of-the-mill Christian 101 stands. And Lord, we are under pressure. We're under pressure to, to, to actually believe the truth of who you are reflected in your word. And in many ways, Lord, the way of the world is causing havoc on many who've grown up in the church. And Lord, we ask for wisdom and discernment. But we, Lord, we ask that you would root us even stronger to one another and to your gospel, to your word, and that we would be faithful to preach it to our hearts and to come before you in prayer. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.